0: You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi.
1: Welcome to Critical Mass, the radio show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. This is our Coast to Coast edition, our nationally syndicated version of the Critical Mass radio show series on Tuesdays at 4 p.m., is our Orange County, Southern California-based show called Critical Mass Radio Show. It's an hour-long interview show, similar format to this. Our focus for that show are business leaders and executives throughout Southern California. This show, which is on Thursdays at 3 p.m., same focus, but the geography is different. We're talking with business leaders from around the country. And today we have a guest from Phoenix, Arizona, and a guest from the greater Philadelphia area as two examples of our national footprint for critical mass coast to coast. Our newest show, The Baby in the Family, if you want to think of it that way, is our Wednesday show, which airs live at 4 p.m. It is a show focused on nonprofit organizations. We call it Critical Mass Nonprofit Show. And our focus with that show is to talk to executive directors, who would have thought it, right? Executive directors and board members of worthy nonprofit organizations, their mission, charter, and who they serve, and any events that they might have in the upcoming future that you would want to know about. All three of our radio programs can be heard on the same internet radio station, and that is octalkradio.net if you're listening to this program live you have found us off of their website and we thank you for that if you're listening to this as a podcast possibly in the future off of Apple iTunes or one of the other podcasting services we use to beam our message to you our listening audience well then maybe you'd consider listening to the program during our broadcast times here on octalkradio.net the goal for this show is to help you Our listening audience make better business decisions. I would like to thank our sponsoring uh, sponsors, our sponsors, excuse me, Smart Business Magazine and Succession Strategies for supporting the program today. If you are listening live and you're expecting to hear our interview with Michael Arrington, we will be talking with him in about 25 minutes, sort of around the bottom of the hour about his business connects and I understand he has a very interesting story to share with us so if you're listening now stay tuned not just for our first interview our first guest as i said hails from the beautiful state of arizona her name is shelly holland the firm jamar association services and we're going to talk about the firm and as well as her business path and other topics so without any further ado let's turn our attention to our first guest and welcome, Shelly Holland, to Critical Mass Coast to Coast.
2: Hi, Rick. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: You are welcome. I thank Stephen Pincus for introducing you to us. We work closely with the Renaissance Executive Forums, business leaders in various communities across the country who are the people that actually bring the guests to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, let's start, Shelly, by asking you to tell us about your firm.
2: Well, Jomar Association Services is actually a management company in Arizona specializing in homeowner associations throughout the Valley. And as you know, homeowner associations are nonprofit organizations that were established to take care of the lifestyle and communities of all of our homes throughout the Valley. And we are one of the top leaders in the industry that boards come to to manage their communities in the best way possible.
1: And tell us a little bit about you. I mean, how long have you been with the firm? What's your history? I know you're the, uh, you're the president of the organization. Is that correct?
2: Yes, president and CEO. And I've actually been with Jomar for about a year and a half. I joined the firm as a senior vice president. And soon after, there were some leadership gold changes, and I was quickly seated as the president and CEO. So I hit the ground running, and it's been fabulous since I've gotten here in doing some, you know, rebranding and stabilizing clients and growing our company. Prior to me joining the firm, I actually had started a small management company um, several years ago with the experiences that I've amassed over the years in the HOA industry, and I've been in the industry 28 years now managing anywhere from small communities to large master plan communities throughout the valley. And with all that experience decided I wanted to embark on that entrepreneurial spirit and start my own company and was doing quite well and a couple years ago was approached by JoMar and Associate which is our parent company to join the firm. So after some negotiation and just, you know, wanting something better for my existing clients because they had much more to offer Along the line of technology and services, than I would be able to offer them for a while. So, decided to uh, make that um, transition with them several years ago. So, I, you know, one of the companies that they've acquired, and actually, Associate acquires companies um, throughout the world um, specializing in the HOA management industry.
1: So, with your um, time in the industry, I have to ask you I'm sure much has changed, but from your perspective, being a business leader in this industry, looking back, I think you said 28 years, mm-hmm. what have been the couple, the top structural changes of the industry or things that have changed in the way that management companies operate? Just give us a sense for, for those of us who aren't as intimate with your industry as you are, you know, what have been the big big macro changes that have gone on in your industry over the past two de- decades?
2: Well, the largest, like in a lot of industry, is the technology, the, you know, social media. Um, Our clients have grown from the smaller communities, and they're all volunteer boards. And at one time, HOA management was very much, you know, kicking the tires and mowing the grass and, you know, making sure everything stayed neat and tidy. But over the years, it's become much more sophisticated from websites to services that we provide to communities, you know, almost like this boutique concierge type service. And with the technology and everything needing to happen to, you know, you know, minute by minute, that's been the biggest change is the client service that we've needed to provide on a more regular basis you know and you know time is money and you know we've got you know younger homeowners that you know very often you know they can text in work orders or they can jump on websites etc so that's been the the biggest challenge that's propelled us to the future that we are today
1: so the good news is you're in the beautiful valley there, somewhere in the greater Phoenix area. Yes. The bad news is, from a housing market, and probably has affected your industry a bit. You're in Phoenix in the housing industry. In the past three four years, from your perspective of being sort of in the industry but not being in the real estate market, um, what's the current sense for the Phoenix housing market? How are how, how much pressure have HO homeowners associations been put under? by virtue of this recession and how it's affected the homeowners within their communities?
2: The pressure has actually been tremendous, and the impact has been overwhelming. When the housing market um, crashed several years ago, we were probably, you know, in the top five, felt it most, um, you know, quickly as, you know, Builders stopped building, you know, the unemployment went up, people were out of work, and unfortunately what happens, you know, people that were losing their home, if they're, it was, so we've got vacant homes in the community, yards that aren't being maintained, pools that aren't being taken care of, association fees that aren't being paid, so associations found themselves in a situation where they weren't able to pay their bills, or those homeowners who were still there trying to hang on were having to make up those deficits. That was the biggest challenge that we've had, and we've been able to dig our heels in, come up with some strategic planning to help these communities get through those rough times. And I do feel that we are on the upswing of that. You've heard the economic indicators. The housing market seems to be doing better. And it is. We've seen the inventory reduce, so homes are selling quicker. They're not vacant, so you don't have that blight in communities. And financially, associations are starting to see some cash flow coming in. We're still dealing with those delinquencies from those past homeowners that we're working to collect from diligently with our attorneys and their collection policies and and whatnot so it's been a long road we're certainly not out of the weather um but we're starting to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel
1: it's interesting Mm -hmm. it's similar to some of what we heard earlier this week on our tuesday show we had a southern california real estate professional who um focuses on short sales her experience is in helping both sellers and buyers Mm -hmm. go through the short sale process and one of the interesting things that she was sharing with our audience on Is that the uh, bottom of the market in Southern California is really competitive from a uh, buyer's perspective? There's limited inventory, and many times multiple, full asking price offers coming in on homes in Southern California that are, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars or less. I guess I would ask if you know, and if you don't, I I appreciate that, but I'm just curious. What what is the house? the stratification of the housing market in Phoenix, are you seeing any of the areas more um, active than others in your market as well?
2: Uh, we are. the, uh, And I've heard from several real estate agents that the higher-end market seems to have they're, – they're moving more now. And then you've got that price range between the one hundred and $250,000 homes that are starting to move again. And then we've got the investors that are coming in, and they're buying – you know the condos and the smaller starter homes and the patio homes in that market that's under a hundred thousand that typically need some improvements and some renovations and things like that. So it's moving a little bit all over. But that price point between 250 and 400 seems to be kind of holding, and not moving as quickly. But as the inventory reduces, then I'm sure that that's going to um, also start showing some momentum.
1: Well, thank you for giving us a little extra bonus conversation, Shelly, beyond talking about you and and the HOA business and your company in particular. So I I just couldn't resist. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing a little bit of what you know. Of course. We're going going to take our first sponsorship break. But when we come back, I'm going to ask Shelly to share with you, our listening audience, her guiding principle for leading jomar association services so when we get back we're going to hear about shelley's guiding principle and then i have a handful of other questions that i plan to get to while we have her on the show but let's first spend a few minutes with our sponsors
0: can we talk about your family business Com. Succession planning for your family's continued success.
3: It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance.
0: Be a reader. Tutor or mentor.
3: Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge now at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome to Critical Mass, Coast to Coast. Our first guest today is Shelley Holland, and Shelley is the president and CEO of Jomar Association Services. We said before the break, Shelley, we're going to ask you to share your guiding principle with our audience. Now's the time.
2: Well, my I guess my guiding principle started, you know, many years ago, and one of the reasons that um, convinced me to join Associa is their philosophy and company culture in the community association industry. And I think it very much starts with our mission statement that we have, which is simply delivering unsurpassed management and lifestyle services to our communities worldwide. And we do that in a variety of ways. First and foremost, you know, if it wasn't for the employees and our staff and the team that we have, there wouldn't be a tomorrow. So we pride ourselves in hiring the best, providing training for them to give them all of the tools to be successful so they can be leaders um, as they forge forward in their careers Um, and then by doing that then we give that great customer service to our clients and we provide very much the same guidance and training to our clients so they have all of the tools to be successful in their communities because you've these volunteer board members um, are running these mini corporations, some with budgets, you know, a hundred to you know, two and three million dollars, depending on size of their community. So they look toward us and, and our principles and our trustworthiness and our um, ethical philosophy to be successful in their communities.
1: That's a key to keep in mind for those in the audience who are listening to learn from your example and your experience, Shelly, Is that? Your clients are volunteers. I mean, they are full-time something else's that do this for whatever reason and give of their time. So, so I guess that, that leads me to, from your perspective, what's the key to being a good partner for a client whose decision makers really don't have the time to be full-time professionals at what they're doing? They're, they're really part-time volunteers.
2: Communication is key because they are part-time volunteers, so they're relying on our expertise to make their jobs easier. And so our communication is of utmost importance to them, whether it's, you know, responding to emails on a regular basis, going through a bid process for whatever it is that they're needing to do from an expense standpoint, to solid Financial statements that are detailed from a delinquent standpoint, cash flow, expenses, accrued expenses, etc. Because if you give them all of that tool, those tools, then they can look through it. it. Makes their job easier. It's going to make your job easier if you're a manager doing what needs to be done. So those tasks and action items are done on a regular basis, and then that gets out into the community because the community sees that things are getting done on a timely manner. And it's our job to make our boards. Look
1: good. Never sat on a community board, but I have attended the meetings, and that dynamic plays out very well. You can see the the dependency that the board has on the representative from the HOA who's there to the management company to kind of take him through it. And that is a lot of responsibility because, as you said, your one of your jobs is to make the board and the community look good. Yes. Hey, anytime you have people involved in anything there's always bound to be some level of disruption Mm -hmm. and i would think through these hard times people are even more agitated and as you said the boards are under a lot of financial pressure so they might not have been able to do things to the level they were doing when everybody was paying and there were no delinquencies. so more important as a trusted advisor to the to your clients
2: Thank you. i like to think that we have, Um, and again, the education is important, and I know my clients, I mean, they're not surprised to see me, uh, myself, show up at a board meeting or an annual meeting or to pick up the phone just to check in with them. You know, it's been a couple months since I've reached out to you. How are things going? You know, are there any concerns? Are we missing something? And then they don't mind to pick up the phone if they're feeling some stress or they need some advice or whatever it may be, you know, from, you know, legislative things that might be coming down the turnpike to, you know, what should we do about this? We need to do new roofs, et cetera. And they just need, you know, that skilled professional just to help plan them through that long-term strategic planning.
1: So let's think about a time in your career where you learned a really valuable lesson. And, you know, it's a lesson such that you carry it with you today, but it came out of a, a business experience that was challenging, difficult, maybe even painful at the time. And if you have that type of an experience and lesson, I'd ask you, let's have a conversation about it here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast.
2: Okay. In thinking about that, the one that's, and I'm not sure if it was a a business lesson learned as much as it was in in moving forward to be the leader I wanted to be. It's a funny story now, but at the time it wasn't. And I was um, interviewing for a new position and the interview was going really well, um, but unfortunately I... I was denied that employment opportunity because the hiring manager said to me that I made her nervous, that she felt threatened that I would be taking her job, which surprised me. And in my mind, I'm saying to myself, you know, my dear, you have this all wrong. It's not your job that I want. But at some point, it's going to be your boss's job. But what I took away from that is that's not the hiring manager I want to be. Um, I want up-and-coming talent, and as a senior manager and a business owner, the position that you want to be in is you want to surround yourself with those superstars, with those that are looking to excel in their careers. You don't want people that are just looking for a job, but those that are looking for your career. So I tried to pattern my leadership skills to not be that person. The best compliment any leader can have is if your apprentice or the person that you've been mentoring goes on to greater things, and that's how business gets built in a successful way.
1: I'm sure what that hiring manager told you is not uncommon for hiring managers at times to worry about hiring people that they perceive to be more talented than them. What I'm surprised about is that she actually said it to you. That was,
2: You know, that really surprised me too, but... I'm not sure where she is today. I just wish her the best.
1: (laughs) Of course, and thank you for the lesson. Let's talk about growth and how you see the opportunities presented. What would be the impact as you successfully leverage it? Where do you see moving the company? You said you went, you know, recently through some changes, and that's going to probably feed some future strategic growth. So talk to us about that, Shelley.
2: Well, Business growth starts primarily with client retention. It's important to keep your existing clients happy. If you do that, in my opinion, you've mastered it because a client a, a happy client is going to refer you to other people and everybody knows people that are living in community associations, whether it's other associations Or service providers etc so we do start with client retention is very important to us and we have found that it just grows from from there and then we nurture those relationships and we go out and we're in the community and we have involvement and many of my staff members reach out to different entities in the different cities for training etc and we have found that that has helped us tremendously also
1: See a consolidation in this industry? I mean, you you sold your private firm to a larger firm. I mean, do, do you see that as a trend? Or final question, you know, what do you see from a from the macroeconomics within your industry?
2: Well, and I, I do see it as a trend. And like I said earlier, I, I'm all for the entrepreneurial spirit. But many times, new business owners don't have a good handle on what it takes for the long-term success. Sometimes companies are here today, gone tomorrow. Um, and what we have found is we'll reach out to that small business owner that is struggling, and that's why we built our business on acquiring those smaller companies so we can give them an exit strategy plan, and we can provide you know, the highest and best service for their clients to make it a win-win for everybody.
1: Final question. Someone would like to learn more about your firm, Shelley. How do they do that online? What is your website?
2: The website is Jomar Associations. Dot com.
1: Well, I appreciate you being a friend on the program. Thanks for the time that you spent kind of reviewing the questions that I wanted to ask you and giving us some really thoughtful answers throughout the interview and responding to those earlier questions that were sort of off script. Again, thanks to Stephen Pincus for bringing you to our attention and I wish you continued success both in your career and with your current position.
2: Thank you very much and it's been a pleasure being a part of the show. Thanks for the invitation.
1: That was our first guest, Shelley Holland, and uh, we're going to switch gears with our second guest. As I said, the gentleman's coming to us from the beautiful greater Philadelphia area, and we're going to be talking with him about a range of topics, not the least of which is his firm. But also, I think want to ask him about the family business, the firm that he's leading as a third-generation family business. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let's take our break here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Spend a few minutes with our sponsors, when we come back, Michael Arrington will be our guest. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at
3: www.sbnonline.com. Green light. Hey girl, school zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah. Street. Pizza sounds good. Ballin' Street. <gasps> Girlin' Street.
0: <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstopwrecks.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Our second guest on the program is Michael Arrington. Michael is the president of Connects. And for those of you that have, have had children since the early nineties on you're probably familiar with his family businesses products but let me first say michael welcome to critical mass coast to coast
3: well thank you it's great to be with you alright so in the spirit of full
1: disclosure i have to admit that my son was all over your father-in-law's creation so let's get right into it tell us about your business
3: sure well as you said we're a third generation family business we make uh, we we've just focus on building worlds kids love we're celebrating our 20th year in toys and our 56th year in, in manufacturing. We're the only building toy company that makes 95% of the parts here in the United States. We're making over two-thirds of our finished products entirely here in the United States now as well. We're one of only three companies in the world that makes toys on a mass scale that you can find, say, at Walmart or Toys R Us or Target here in the United States. So. We're very proud to be able to do that, and we're partnered with some great worldwide brands like Nintendo and Angry Birds and NASCAR, Sesame Street. So it's it's, it's fun. All the stuff I watched growing up, now we get to make, watch uh, our kids enjoy.
1: Part of the interesting story here is not only the captivating product that you make that kids love to use and parents enjoy them learning by using, but it's also the fact that this product line has led to a big a business that is now significantly larger than the original business that it kind of grew out of. So take us back a little bit and share with our audience sort of the history of Connects and the company and how it got started.
3: Sure. So we go back to 1956 and my father-in-law's father was a, a chemist who helped formulate one of the original formulations for synthetic rubber in the country and Uh, He helped during World War II so that all of the planes could be refueled and all those gas hoses, et cetera, that you still fill up with today are some of his original formulations. He ended up seeing that plastics might be a replacement for rubber back in the 50s. And uh, when his son uh, turned 23 years old and met the woman woman he thought he might want to marry, suggested to him that he might want a job that, you know, paid something. Uh, And so he said, I've got these presses and plastics. I'm not doing much with it. Do you want to take a shot at it? Started literally in a garage with four presses. Grew that business to a very, very nice business over the next 30 years. And sort of turned 50 years old and retired down to Florida, you know, making a bunch of parts. Really small, billions and billions of small plastic injection molded parts for a variety of industries, from things that hold the pizza box off the pizza to the ends of plastic Christmas trees to uh, drywall screws and beyond. But he always wanted to make an end-use product. And he was an electric set kid growing up and thought he could make a better one and had the factory to play around with his ideas. So after playing around with some straws one day at a wedding, spent the next year and a half, two years designing, getting the patents for, and building all the tools, for the original 22-piece rod and connector color-coded system that was Kinex. And his whole plan was to take that idea to a big toy company, be their manufacturer, and go back to Florida. What ended up happening is he pitched every toy company that existed uh, at the time, and they all turned him down. And, in fact, the rejection letters from two of the biggest toy companies in the world, Hasbro and Mattel, still hang in our lobby today as a reminder that the big guys aren't always right. He said, all right, well, if they're that dumb, what they know can't be that hard to learn, so we'll go and do it ourselves. And we raised some money with friends and family, convinced Toys R Us to give them an audience. We test marketed Toys R Us, Detroit and in Philadelphia, back in 1992. And then they it went so well, they took it nationwide in 1993. And uh, now we distribute the toys to over 40 countries around the world. You know, And we're, as I said, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary in toys. So we still make all the little plastic parts for all the other industries, uh, today uh, for people like Green Mountain Coffee and Beckton Dickinson and a variety of other people and obviously we're best known for the the toys that we make uh, that everybody's using and I'm glad to hear uh, you know in your own family as well over all these years yeah I mean
1: I'm fascinated by the guests that grace the airwaves here on critical mass coast to coast as you know I work in Philadelphia with Ken Wax renaissance executive forums business owner in the community I work with other people like Ken who were with Renaissance across the country and I'm fascinated at the guests that I get a chance to meet by virtue of this nationally syndicated radio show and then to see that you were on and to connect to your product was quite exciting. My son, who is now 23 years old, will be visiting us this weekend and I'm going to make sure to tell him that I had you on my radio program.
3: That's great.
1: The business that is born out of the Connect's product line compared to the traditional business that you still are growing and building. Are you comfortable sharing the relative size of those two enterprises?
3: Well what we what we do share is that we have about ten percent of the construction toy market around the world. It represents, you know, somewhere around two hundred million dollars in retail sales. That's what we do. And then on the on the molding side, we don't share the, the numbers, but we do tell you we make about 3 billion parts a year for a variety of different customers on the, on the plastic injection molding side of the business This
1: is what I love about entrepreneurial businesses one idea by an inventor slash entrepreneur that he just can't give up begets a significant new revenue stream, you're employing probably way more people now than you would have if you wouldn't have launched this product line not to yeah, mention your sure. equipment and the other things that you've had to buy
3: that's for sure. Yeah, we even through the through the Great Recession, you know, we've grown our employment base by about 25 percent. You know, we've got a couple hundred employees now. and we had about 150, you know, 08, and it's it's fun. It's you know the ripple effects of not only being able to employ the people that we have, but they spend money in the community, and you know we know that for every manufacturing job that's created, another five or seven jobs are are supported. So it's it's nice to be able to do that. Uh, it's nice to be able to make things here. We actually are launching literally this month uh, Tinker Toys again for the first time in the United States in over five decades. So it's it's fun to be able to have some great American brands actually made here in America, exporting it around the world. You know, I know we're not going to solve the entire economic strife that we're, we're in the middle of recovering from ourselves, but I hope that we can be an example of how you can do it. And if you put your mind to it and decide you're going to do it, that you get creative and you figure out how to make it happen.
1: I have to tell you, my belief system is if you want to help a community, the best thing you can do is to put a well-run, successful manufacturing company in there because of the residual positive impact on the community. So all that you said, I completely connect to. I completely understand. I guess I would ask, given that so much of your competition doesn't share your philosophy and doesn't have your footprint, from a leader of your company, can you share with us kind of what decisions you have to make to make sure that you're able to remain competitive? Because your market space is a highly competitive space. This is not one where you can stand still.
3: That's true. Well, what you know, we are competing on a global scale, both in the toy side and in the you know the blind part side, because obviously if we're just a blind component part. It doesn't matter to most purchasing agents where it comes from as long as it gets there on time. And so because of that, our approach to it has been to invest heavily in automation uh, and robotics uh, and in very, very uh, lean manufacturing principles. Uh, you know, we're running hundred over 100 molding presses in a 130,000 square foot facility with five operators on a shift. So what we've done is taken overseas advantage, which is Lambert, and made the labor component an incredibly low component of the finished goods price. And so that's how we realized we could solve this puzzle. Because at the end of the day, you as a consumer, if you're going to buy a birthday present, you know, you still don't still want, want to spend more than 20 or $25. It still has to be a good value, it still has to be fun, and it still has to be a good value compared to what the other people are doing who are making stuff overseas. And so we understand that equation. And so we figure, okay, well, we can do all that as long as we can get really, really talented people, train them really well, and invest in a lot of automation. So it's a fair amount, I guess, of upfront expense because robotics are a, a little bit more expensive than some of the, the remote control stuff you find in the toy aisle. But you have to be willing to do those things if you want to compete on a global scale. I would say that manufacturing is not for the faint of heart, but once you get your systems together and understand what, the speed of the supply chain goes through you. That's a tremendous advantage to be that fast. Then you can compete on a global scale and be successful. And that's what we've done. We sort of had an instinct that speed of the market ultimately beats all other advantages. And so we know that we have twice the speed of our competitors. And we're working right now to having our development time again. And I think we'll have that accomplished by the end of next year. So, you know, that is the kind of, that's the way you've got to keep competing. You've got to find a way to be the quickest guy to the shelf or the quickest response time for your customer, no matter what you're making. And that's where we keep our focus.
1: Michael, are you an engineer or is your
3: experience? No, I'm I'm actually a lawyer gone good. I've actually practiced law for a number of years and I was an in-house lawyer for, a large public company, Toll Brothers, the home builder, for about eight years in charge of some of their uh, development approvals. But what I learned at all those experiences was that I think the best lawyers understand how to ask the right questions, synthesize information, and manage risk. And so since most of business is just a risk-reward calculation, the part of me that I guess is not classically lawyer-like is I like taking risks as long as I feel like the odds are in our favor. But that's what I do there. And then at Toll Brothers, I learned a lot about systems and how process can really turn sort of a B-level player into an A-level performer. Because if you use boring and effective things like checklists and you don't miss any of the things on the checklist, stuff comes out right at the other end. It doesn't all happen in a day or a week or even a year, but if you incrementally improve every month, every quarter, you look back over three or four years and you really start to see the results of all of those small improvements.
1: You can't argue with continuous improvement and Kaizen. you use the term lean manufacturing. Were those programs and processes in place before you took over the firm or or help us to understand how the firm came to this realization sure. of automation? Sure.
3: so no I understand yeah there was I think there was a history of really looking at automation on the molding side from pretty early on, sort of from even, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, although there wasn't the kinds of, obviously, techniques today. So sort of the Mm -hmm. mindset was there. Then when I I came into the business a little over seven years ago, that mindset really didn't exist on the toy side when I came in. And so what we started doing was applying that mindset to the toy side as well to make us as fast as we were there and as lean as we were on the toy side as we already were on the manufacturing side. And then as we saw what opportunities we wanted to go after on both sides of the business, it required new kinds of investments. So the big investments, for example, on the molding side were in these very, very powerful robots that allow us to do packaging at the press so that we can run the press 24 hours a day without three operators and therefore be cheaper than China, literally, in terms of the part price that we're delivering to our business-to-business business consumer. On the business-to-consumer con- side, on the toy side, it was about being able to take advantage of trends like, uh, you know, Nintendo, like Angry Birds, which we're launching this fall. So in order to do that, you have to be able to build tooling quickly, get the finished goods quickly on the shelf, because there's no guarantee how long that trend will last. And so that's using those kind of principles on the toy side is something that we developed very much so over the last, I'd say, five years, and I'm really seeing the benefits of now
1: and how did that affect your supply base because to do what you're saying you do in a manufacturing environment you are not an isolated island you are very dependent on your supply chain and so with, with this mentality how hard was it to find local suppliers that bought into what you needed them to do
3: you know it took us probably a good 18 to 24 months to find qualified people who thought we could do it and then test them on some smaller projects and then finally whittle it down to the ones that could do it the best but we found once we started looking is that maybe it's that whole birds of a feather thing. We found people that had similar mindsets, and that's how they were surviving the Great Recession. We made sort of a, a rule. We wanted to be able to have no more than a two-hour drive for our key suppliers, and we started there. And then we said if we couldn't find anybody, we'd look farther than that. So we were able to find people all within a hundred mile radius of our headquarters in suburban Philadelphia. But it took, as I said, eighteen to twenty four months to go through that whole process to get everybody. And that's what we stopped there. Now now that we're in sort of year five of that, we've had improvements every year, but we've stayed with the vendors that made it through the qualification process because what we believe in ideally are long term partnerships. And so what we try to do is figure that better you know our business than the better you'll do for us over time because it's in both of our interests to invest long-term together. That way we've sort of built all of our relationships now over the last five years.
1: I'm being very selfish with this conversation, Michael, because I'm, I'm in, intrigued and interested in what you're doing. So sure. I'm, I'm a bit off script kind of, but I think for those that are out there, there's all, there are a lot of lessons that even non-manufacturing companies can learn from manufacturing companies, especially construction companies. There's a lot of similarities there, but it goes out even to service-based companies, et cetera. So kind of final question in this area, and then we'll take a sponsorship break and come back with a few wrap-up questions on the other side. But my final question about your manufacturing footprint is, have you found through adoption of Lean and the other tools that you're using to improve your manufacturing footprint that you're able to optimize your floor space, in addition to the people piece of it, just the real estate and the area that you need to get the work done. Have, have you seen improvement in, in that as well?
3: It's funny that you say that. One of the early examples of that, because as you grow, you get more people and you want to figure out how to put those people. So we've done both reorganizations of the floor space for the people. And then we also did some some you know, things that, again, you wonder why you didn't think of it earlier, but putting more efficient racking so that you're using both the volume and the square footage of your of our warehouse. By doing that, we were able to consolidate warehouses from five down to two and save all that money. So by saving all that money, hiring all those people didn't increase our total cost of running the company. So it's those kinds of things that, as you say, look, we've got to run more efficiently. Every time you look at an area, you find some stuff. you know. And I, and I would say that now it's getting harder to find stuff because we probably found the easiest items in the first couple of years. But so that doesn't mean we stopped looking. And so every time we do that, and we try to do that sort of on at least a quarterly basis now, we sort of have what we call CSI, because I'm just a TV fan, but that stands for us, for Cost Savings Initiatives. So when we do CSI, looking at by department, and we're saying, okay, you've got your department. If you wanted to do all the things you're doing today with 5% less resources, how would you do it? And... Sometimes the answer is we absolutely can't. But more more often than not, the answer is oh, well, wait a minute. What if we consolidated these couple of things? Or what if we bought this in bulk? Or what if we changed hours of uh, scheduling of these people? You know, and and it's amazing how often we're able to find additional savings every time we look. Wow, this
1: is again, I. Um... I'm so delighted to have you on the show and have this conversation. We're going to take our final sponsorship break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about the future, Michael. I'm going to ask you to share with us your vision for growth and and where you see moving both entities towards in the future. We'll have you back on the radio program at some future date as well. I kind of want to get a sense from you what your vision for growing the firm is, and we're going to do that after we hear from these sponsors, ladies and gentlemen.
0: There's something happening out there today. All across America, we're seeing encouraging signs of economic recovery. Businesses are once again thinking about new growth, and new opportunities are emerging. But it raises the question, is your company positioned to take full advantage of the economic recovery and the opportunities it presents? Maybe it's time to ask, how has the recession impacted your business model? Is your business as relevant as it once was? Should you consider entering new markets or expanding into new categories? And what do customers really value about their relationship with you? The golden thread through all these questions and the answer to each and every one of them can be found in just one place. Your brand. It's much deeper than your logo and much bigger than your advertising. Your brand is the enabler of your entire business strategy. Rekha's Baird is a brand strategy firm that can help. They specialize in business branding. They've helped hundreds of companies from startups to Fortune 500 leverage their brands to drive growth. They can do the same for yours. It's really quite simple. Find out more, just visit brandingbusiness.com. That's www.brandingbusiness.com. And plant the seed for economic growth.
1: This is the sound of a flat-screen television hurled off a building. Now the new bike your kid wants. These are the things you could have all cast into oblivion. Because when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have bought with it. Use ENERGY STAR light bulbs and appliances, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Michael Arrington is our guest. He's the president of Connects, And we said before the break you were going to share with us your vision of growth and the future, Michael.
3: Sure, happy to do that. On the Connects toy side, the vision stems around three main initiatives over the next three to five years. As I said, we have about a 10% share of the construction toy marketplace, a little bit more in the U.S., a little bit less in Europe, and none in Asia. And so our goal is to be at 25% of the world's Construction toy marketplace by the end of 2017, uh, and so that's what we're marching towards every every day. And we, as part of that, are building a direct-to-consumer business with the ability to, to really ship to you anybody's door on any country on the planet. In addition to going working with our retail partners both here and around the globe. In addition to that, on the toy side, the other thing that we're doing is we already have some educational product that is uh, tied to curriculum in schools, is used by a couple of thousand schools today, would like to be used uh, in every school in the country, uh, and so we're going to make a big push to grow our education division as well over the next uh, three to five years. So that's what we're doing there. On the road-on side of the business, it is uh, two things, also two main things. First is uh, utilizing our full, full capacity on a seven-day week. Road-on, we've still got about you know, 35 40% of our capacity on a seven-day week to fill. Uh, And as we do that, uh, we we see the power of, you know, the power of that capacity utilization and what that does for the bottom line and the ability to reinvest in our growth for the future. And in addition to that, there are a large, large number of injection molders around the country, probably about 5,000 of them, many of them family-owned, and many of them without a generation like me who's interested in taking that business. And so we'd like to establish a much bigger national footprint on the molding side through uh, some roll-ups that we're getting started on this year and over the next five years so we've got a lot of exciting things on our plate both on the toy side and on the molding side and then I want to make sure that I do at least our part to be a strong American manufacturer so that we can you know help create the middle class that this country deserves for now and for my kids and their kids
1: you have been a very interesting guest on the radio program I'm sure many who have had the good fortune to be listening to us today live have taken away many good lessons. I'm hopeful that when we turn your show into a podcast so that it can be rebroadcast anytime, anywhere, you'll help us to get this word out because I think this interview has a lot of lessons to be heard and learned from. So, Michael, thank you again for being on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Welcome to the Executive Forum's business community and continued success
3: in your endeavors. Well, thank you so much. It was my pleasure to be a part of it, and I look forward to uh, helping getting the word out for you.
1: Last question. How would someone find you online?
3: two websites are uh, www.connex.com uh, and our ma- our manufacturer, the Rodon Group, which is R-O-D-O-N, rodongroup.com. All right. Have a good day. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank Bye-bye. You.
1: All right. Well, this is Rick Franzi. I am the host of this radio program as well as its two sister programs, Critical Mass and Critical Mass Nonprofit Show. I'd like to thank our producer today, Pablo Roberto, and our marketing communications manager, Kelly Faltis. And so this is your host, Rick Franzi, saying until the next time we have a chance to talk, here's hoping that all of your decisions move your business in a positive direction.
0: You've been listening to Critical Mass Coast to Coast,
1: only on octalkradio.net.